This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Slate's Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by Netflix, presenting Season 3 of its original series, House of Cards, about ruthless D.C. power couple Frank and Claire Underwood, starring Golden Globe winner Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. All episodes are available on Friday, February 27th. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 27th, the BBVDVCI edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of CBS News and Slate is uh, Adwat. And Agosh in New Haven is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, guys. Always Gosh. Always Gosh. But never. Awesome. It's John, it is true that John is very Adwat and you are, you are Agosh in all, in many senses. I'm left handed, among others. Yes. We, we have a majority left handed Gab Fest. Yeah, I know. I always Why feel like... is it the Jews are so predominantly left-handed? It's like definitely a thing. Well, it's also you know, smart it also people. also tracks schizophrenia, so don't get too excited. I'm not schizophrenic, so I'm not that excited <laughs> about it. Smart Jewish schizophrenic. Thanks for reassuring uh, but, us. But, uh, and there's also an over-representation of, of left-handed people, I think, in the presidency. Yeah. Oh, Clinton, yeah. Clinton, uh, Clinton JFK, George, Obama. George H.W., um, is that merely a 20th century phenomenon? There was a point where every Ross Perot was left-handed. There was, I remember there was just a series where every candidate was left-handed. I can't remember what Chester Arthur is. I bet you it's left true he had, when he you go back play, in he did it with his time because the chops. lefties were turned he, into righties. That's true. That is true. On this week's show, we'll discuss left. <laughs> we'll discuss handedness, <laughs> handedness and footedness. In the presidency. <laughs> footedness and handedness. No, we'll talk about – we'll preview the biggest Supreme Court case of the year, the one that will – potentially topple Obamacare if the Supreme Court decides it in a particular way. Then we'll talk about the furor caused by Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's speech to Congress about Iran next week against the wishes of President Obama. And then we will talk about whether Chris Christie's campaign, presidential campaign, is already over. Plus we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we will talk about the most incisive television depiction of politics. It is not the show you think it is. Before we get to the real topics, though, exciting announcement. We have a live show. We haven't done a live show in a while. We have a live show coming up in Brooklyn, New York at the Bell House on April 8th. Slate.com slash GabFestNYC. Slate.com slash GabFestNYC to get tickets to this April 8th show. Slate Plus members, you have a 48-hour jump on everyone else. You can get tickets first, the pre-sale with your promotional code. You can unlock it with a promotional code. Then on Sunday, tickets will be available to the general public. There's also a cocktail hour prior to the event, and only 30 tickets for that are going to be sold. And so Slate Plus members are going to get a jump on that too. So it seems like maybe this is a good chance to become a Slate Plus member. So, uh, I think the show starts at 7.30, cocktails are at 6. And Slate Plus members, you also get a 30% off your tickets. It's going to be great. I'm so excited. We haven't done a live show in a while. Our live show at the Bell House was really fun before. So come on out. It's going to be awesome. Are you guys excited? John is like I not excited. I am excited. And in fact, I no, didn't even know where we were going until you just said that. And now I'm thrilled to discover it. No, I'm totally excited. I love our live shows. All right. With that ringing endorsement from John Dickerson, we will continue. Just three years ago, a very narrow Supreme Court decision saved Obamacare from a sneaky conservative legal assault. Now comes another sneaky conservative legal assault with potential to gut the law, a law that is, I think, 
been generally recognized to have been pretty successful. In King versus Burwell, which is going to be argued at the Supreme Court next week, conservative plaintiffs and legal scholars are challenging the subsidies that are paid by the federal government to people who cannot afford full-priced insurance because of an oddity in how the law was written. The challengers claim the subsidies that are provided to the people in the 34 states without state health insurance exchanges are illegal. Those subsidies are illegal. The ones in the state exchanges are legal. Gutting the subsidies, it is generally agreed, would very, very much damage the law. Millions of people would not be able to afford their insurance. Millions of people mostly in red states, incidentally. And premiums would skyrocket. So, Emily, how did we get to this legal challenge from whence it came? Well, you could argue we got to this legal challenge because Congress wrote what it wrote in these two sentences in this law, which is hundreds of pages long, and that changes the entire meaning of the law. Or you could argue we got well, here and what because— did they, Just for those listeners who are not, say, familiar with the details <laughs> of, the, of the Affordable Care Act, what did they write that is at issue? In describing the eligibility for subsidies in two places, Congress used the word state exchange, suggesting that they meant to, at least in the eyes of the challengers to the law, suggesting that Congress intended to restrict the subsidies to states that established their own exchanges. And to just continue this line of argument, another step, the idea is that Congress was trying to give the states an incentive to set up their own exchanges, to promote state-run exchanges above federally-run exchanges. There is no contemporaneous evidence in the record from Congress that this is what anyone was talking about, um, only after the fact expressions of this idea, but that is still um, the theory here. And the other reason we have this lawsuit are two really smart legal should I call them scholars? One is a law professor, Jonathan Adler, and the other is Michael Cannon at the Cato Institute. And they really promoted this theory and got this case moving. And in the beginning, I think it's fair to say that most um, court watchers and law professors, et cetera, healthcare folks didn't really take it very seriously. It seemed like a drafting error. But when the Supreme Court takes a case and there are four conservatives who were eager to overturn Obamacare the first time around, it starts to look very serious. And that's where we are now. Does it matter, Emily, as a um, way to think about this case, that this is a statutory interpretation versus a constitutionality question in terms of understanding both the case, but also understanding how the justices might rule. Yeah. So one way to think what John's been doing his homework. <laughs> Just using tossing around the, the statutory. statutory interpretation. Well, I mean, yeah. You liked that. Yes, it does matter. For one thing, there's no larger constitutional principle at stake. This is merely about how the justices read the statute. Or maybe you could say how they read statutes more generally. And there's been a lot of pointing at statements by really pretty much every member of the court that in general, the way that the Supreme Court and every court should and does go about reading laws is contextually so that you don't myopically focus on one sentence if it would seem to make the entire law crash in a way that nobody anticipated. So there is much trumpeting of, you know, Scalia and Kennedy and Robert. Really, almost everybody has a quote from past opinions that would suggest that you're supposed to read the statute in context. The question is whether the justices will see that as um, as saving the law this time around. I mean, you look at the sentence and it doesn't look good. Like if it, it, as someone who just, you know, who just yes. reads that one particular sentence, you're like, well, it does say state, you know, it does say and state. And there are two sentences yeah. in all fairness. Or two sentences. So in two places. In, in, normal, yeah. in normal circumstances, Congress, in the period before the bill is actually passed and the reconciliation, what's it called, John? Well, not reconciliation, where they, where they have the House and Senate. What's the word? It's reconciliation. reconciliation. They reconcile the two Re- versions reconcile of the bill together. So they, but they that fi- didn't happen. They, right. The they fix the statutory – or they – although go back afterwards and, right. and clean up statutory errors. In this case, like the bill was never reconciled. There is no chance. This Congress is too you – know, it became, quickly became too political for this Congress to go back and fix anything. But is it the Supreme Court's job to fix – that which the legislature will not fix. Is it the Supreme Court's responsibility to say, you know what, we, the Congress isn't, isn't acting. You know, there's an obvious fix. If they want to fix it and clarify it, they can. But they're not. So we just have to rule on what's in front of us. Right. So if the law f- goes down and there are five votes, that will be exactly the line. It will be – and the D.C. Circuit conservative judge who voted against the law – 
at that stage, it's like the sort of more in sorrow than in anger. Like, look, what can we do? This is what it says. Sorry, Congress, you can go fix it. We're not, you know, just rewrite the law. No problem. That's exactly what how that opinion will read. The reason to think that's just wrong in this case is that if you read the law as a whole, it's clear that state exchange means an ex- it was taken to mean an exchange that's available in a state. It's not the mechanism by which you set up the exchange. It's the fact that it is there in the state. And there is just no evidence that Congress was trying to privilege state-run exchanges by granting subsidies only to people who lived in states with state-run exchanges. In fact, I mean, to me, one of the more breathtaking, convincing documents in this case is a, st- a brief filed by 21 states that have federally run exchanges. And there is such they do such a good job of mining the records of their own state officials, other state officials who, when they were deciding, should we have a state run exchange or a federally run exchange, were saying things like, don't worry, these exchanges treat our citizens exactly alike. There isn't going to be any difference. And so these 21 states are saying to the Supreme Court, hey, wait a second, we had no notice that this was going to make a difference. And actually, there's a whole doctrine of separation of powers and the balancing of congressional and state authority, which says that if Congress is about to, like, make some huge change into the state-federal relations and pass a bill in a way that has huge implications for the states, they have to give clear notice. And so these 21 are saying, like, wait a second, we had no notice. And I'm going to say one more thing before I shut up. The other thing that's really interesting is the let's go back three years to our first challenge of Obamacare. There were 26 states that said Congress doesn't have the power to pass this law. Now there are only seven, arguably eight states that are taking that very red state conservative position. And some of the 21 states that are arguing, no, no, please, we need to keep our subsidies include like Mississippi, North Dakota. I mean, we're talking about some real red rock Republican states that are saying, wait a second, we did not understand the law this way. And there's no way we possibly could have. So, I mean, in this case, it wasn't that the law was going to change existing an existing relationship with the states. It was creating a new system with the states. Yes. And then when you create a new system in the states, if opting out is going to cause you a huge penalty under that new system, they have to flag it. They have to put yes, it somewhere Yes, that's a much up. better way of putting what I was trying to say before. Like if you're creating this new – burden's the wrong word – but this new set of requirements that have big implications. You're right. John. So when you read the terms and conditions – of your new iPhone contract, like you <laughs> yes. can't hide the fact that you'll be decapitated if you share a song in like paragraph 19, subsection E. Right, right. Exactly. Or at least not if you're a, if the iPhone contract is between Congress and the states right. between Apple and us, they probably can do that. Alas, John, have we reached the point now with with Obamacare that Republicans actually don't want to get rid of it? Because there will obviously become a time when it becomes when the, the law is, if it, if it survives, where it's embedded deeply enough in America, enough people are benefiting from it, that Republicans just ha- have to sort of work on improving, modifying, and not trying to get rid of it. Have we reached that moment, or is it still? do we have to pass this case, and then we'll be, we'll be done with it? You have to pass this case, whichever way this case comes out, because you can imagine if, let's say, this case strikes down this interpretation of the IRS tax code and therefore takes away the subsidies from the 34 states that are have federal exchanges and therefore initiates the death spiral, it will cause a huge scramble to try to fix it in those states. Because even red state governors as, as and legislatures, as Emily was pointing out, very few of them are on board with getting rid of this provision. It will create chaos in their states because there are hundreds of thousands of people who will who will lose the subsidy and therefore lose the insurance. They don't want chaos. Now, some of them are thinking through how to come up with their own state exchanges. So what would happen is in order to avert chaos, they would inject their own state exchanges. And they want those state exchanges to have a Republican cast maybe. But you have to fit that in. You kind of have to parallel park that into the existing law because the rest of the law would stay. So fitting it into the existing law at the state level would require – sort of keeping the existing law. Fixing the federal law at the federal level or at the Senate and House level 
will be almost impossible because you need 60 votes in the Senate and you'd have to have the president sign it. So in other words, it's, it's unlikely there would be a fix in the House and the Senate. So all of that unlikeliness means you're kind of stuck with the underlying law and, you know, the chaos that ensues, you would imagine the governors would have to like move fast. Right. But you're not really answering the question. So so the House passed this week. They, they voted for the 56th time to repeal Obamacare, these symbolic votes. But you have an enormous number of Republican governors who are in states with federal exchanges that basically don't want this case to prevail. And they don't really want to right, cause – so, so, But doesn't I, that answer your question, David, yeah. that we're talking about the difference between governors who actually have to do things and Congress, which right. just gets to well, strut well, around? So, so the, I guess my question is at, at some point – it becomes stupid for Republican the Republican Party at a national level to talk about this and focus well, on this obsessively. Have we yet reached that? Yeah, moment? yeah. Leg- well, I guess my, my point was to – I was trying to answer you practically. So practically, even if the Supreme Court strikes down this provision and initiates the death spiral, you still are going to be stuck with and Obamacare. initiating death spiral. <laughs> you're still going to be stuck. If, if the Supreme Court doesn't strike it down, then you're stuck with Obamacare. So in either case – it feels like you're stuck with it. The one is obviously you'd be throwing you know, a wrench into the works for sure. As a political matter, you're going to have still plenty of people who will inveigh against the Affordable Care Act and say it should be removed and, and destroyed. But that number is shrinking, A. B, there is still this continued pressure on the Republican Party to show that it can govern. And to the extent that the vote after vote after vote on getting rid of Obamacare is not what people care about primarily, it's a time-wasting exercise. And then I think the third, you have people like Ben Carson, who's running for president in the Republican side, very conservative fellow, who says, you know, Republicans have to promote their own health care law before they take get rid of Obamacare. So if promoting, and there are alternatives out there, there are plenty of Republican alternatives, but you have to run on it, get everybody to agree on it, promote it, and do all of that before you can get rid of Obamacare. That's a long process, takes a long time. Every day that people are signing up with Obamacare, it's becoming habituated into the into the American system. The harder it is to replace it. All right, last question. Can which I is say to you. one more thing about the litigation before we end? Which is just I want to give um, due to Scott Pruitt, the Attorney General of Oklahoma. He is the state official that has led this particular charge, and Oklahoma before the states had to decide whether to do state or federally run exchanges, like two months before the deadline. Oklahoma claimed that this was the reading of the law all along, and so in the brief from the states who are opposing the law, the best piece of evidence is Oklahoma saying, "Like we said, this was the right reading from." The get-go. And I just love that, that like one state's kind of alternate reading is supposed to be noticed for the whole country. Wait, so Emily, just the final question on this is, it's a two-part question. Is, do you think that there are five votes available? Is, you know, are Roberts and Kennedy, and I mean, for that matter, Scalia and and Alito, who also seem actually might be sympathetic to the, the relatively liberal side, the maintain Obamacare side of this. Do you think those five votes could possibly go against the Obama administration on this, number one. And number two is that there was the Linda Greenhouse piece arguing that the the Supreme Court's very legitimacy would be in question if they ended up with a decision that interpreted the statute this way. Do you sympathize with that view? So my answer to the first question is I'm torn. Part of me thinks this case is like 9-0 in favor of the law or at least like 8-1 to or 7-2 to because of this basic doctrine that you read statutes in context and that focusing on these two sentences when it would create such an absurd result just doesn't make any sense and like none of them in the end are going to be able to stomach that. And then the other thing that makes me think maybe there'll be a 5-4 vote in favor of the law and it'll be Roberts plus the liberals again is that Obamacare, as you were saying, it's much less politically vulnerable now than it was. Like if there was a moment to for the Supreme Court to kill Obamacare and be in line with public opinion, it was two or three years ago, not now. And I think that Linda's piece is essentially um, – one way of bolstering that argument by saying, like, the court is really going to do damage to itself as an institution. John Roberts, as the chief justice, cares about that in a different way from anyone else. And he doesn't seem to, you know, Citizens United, which is the big kind of self-dealt blow the court has taken in his tenure, it seems to me that he's been careful not to have other repeat episodes of that. 
those are all arguments in favor of the law staying in place. And it just seems so inconceivable that it would go down that I basically on that side. On the other hand, I wrote a piece a few weeks ago or a month ago pointing out that one of the things that is helpful to the court as an institution and to Roberts as the chief is when a conservative decision is balanced with a liberal one. And at the end of this term, we are going to have a gay marriage decision and it's probably going to come out in favor of gay marriage. And that will create some amount of political cover for killing Obamacare. On the other hand, it's not like – I think it's not enough political cover because it will still be such a thunderbolt in the political landscape. Um, anyway, that's my back and forth thinking about this. You got more hands than John Travolta loose at the Oscars. Um, now, <laughs> I always do, don't oh I? Oh, my God. Did you just say that? That was just that was so feeble. It's like a six day old <laughs> I joke. That was a weird moment. I'm with him. it was a weird moment. But it's just I don't know. John just like he'd been working that up. Somehow. I don't think so. I think moment. it just tripped right off yeah. his tongue. Um, Emily, you mentioned that Citizens United was seen as a as a black eye. Does Robert see it that way? Well, the court's public approval rating went down 10 points after Citizens United. So, yes, it's inescapable. I mean, there's just no other factor that explains that deep dive. And there hasn't been – I mean, the court's – Bush versus Gore didn't cause that kind of drop, surprisingly. It really is Citizens United. GapFest this week is sponsored by Stamps.com. You know that feeling when you can't get things done with just the click of your mouse. Doing that is so convenient. It's the most convenient thing you can do. And now you can even get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk, thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. Then just hand your mail to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. Never go to the post office again. Right now... Our promo code GABFEST gets you a special offer, no risk trial, and a digital scale, a free digital scale, and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. With Stamps.com, enter GABFEST. I would like to report that I'm going to be out of town next week when Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, will visit Washington to address a joint session of Congress. Maybe you can stay in your house. Yeah. Netanyahu was, of course, invited behind the back of the president and the State Department by House Speaker John Boehner. Very unusual variation on the traditional protocol in which the president and the administration generally invites foreign leaders. Much indignation about this. The administration is essentially abandoning the city. John Kerry is going to be in Switzerland. Vice President Biden will be in Uruguay. Secretary of Energy Ernie Moniz in Cameroon. Arnie Duncan, Kuala Lumpur. Susan and Rice you already said you were leaving. Jack Lew in Irkutsk. Sylvia Burwell will have an ophthalmology appointment. <laughs> right. Ashton Carter will be at Bonnaroo. Penny Pritzker is going to SeaWorld. Now, so yeah, I just got grief for the bad John Travolta yeah. joke. Yeah. And then yeah, you right. just <laughs> I have to, you just get to show up in the room and just like do whatever you want. I actually have to prepare us, John. No, I know, but oh, you, yeah. you know, I prepare edge us. You of bitterness. Show, I know, but to go get the horse and then just beat it until it becomes glue, it seems to I me. I liked that. You guys are being so mean to each other. You're both being I was being this ni- I was being nice until the uh all right. <laughs> David did start it. You're right. That All was right. odd timing of David to go after you on that one. I agree. Well, I breached protocol just like Bibi Netanyahu is breaching protocol. Hmm. So, John, is it a big deal that Congress and the person of the House Speaker, John Boehner, has circumvented traditional modes of, of etiquette and invited the Prime Minister of Israel to address Congress at a time when he's running for re-election, at a time when there's very sensitive negotiations with Iran going on, or is it fair game? Is it? Is it? Let's start with that first part before we get to the, kind of the substance. Is the is the theater of it okay? I guess what's the big deal is not the breach so much, but that we've gotten to the point where such a breach could happen, which doesn't make sense because if the breach doesn't matter, why is it a symbol of how bad the situation is? Inviting a foreign leader to, to address Congress. I mean, foreign leaders lobby Congress. In fact, the prime minister of Britain was lobbying senators on this question of Iran recently. But this comes at a very tense and difficult time in the relationship with Israel. And it's now gotten incredibly partisan. And it presents problems for everyone. And it, it suggests that the relationship between Israel, between Netanyahu and Obama has gotten so toxic and bad Netanyahu has to run, has to do this end run. 
that's bad that it's gotten that bad because obviously the negotiations over Iran are incredibly sensitive and the U.S. has to have a close relationship with Israel. And Israel should want the U.S. to have a good relationship or have the president be thinking about Israel in the best possible light because the president's the one at the end who's going to have to say yes or no to this deal. And so the fact that the relationship between the president and Netanyahu is so bad, it means that his mind on the question of Israel and and its national security interests is clouded, is bruised, is occluded by all of this stuff. And that can't be good for Israel. And the pressure that this may or may not put on the White House, I don't know how successful it will be in changing the vector of the White House's approach to the Iranian negotiations, which is its intended purpose. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I think. Yeah, I mean, digging deeper on that. So so the goal of Netanyahu is to get the U.S. to either not do negotiate a deal with Iran or negotiate a deal with insist on a deal with Iran that is is much more onerous on Iran, allows them much less possibility to enrich uranium, is of longer duration, has stricter verification and punishment attached, or to have the negotiations collapse in such a way that Iran is responsible for it. So that's Netanyahu's goal. It's also his goal to get reelected. He's facing an election very soon. Part of the reason that Israel has been so successful in Washington is that it has essentially been a bipartisan cause, that while Republicans are slightly more aligned these days with whatever it is that the Israeli national government wants to do, in general, both parties have been hugely supportive of whatever it is that the Israeli governments want to do, with only minor variations over many, many decades. And it appears, I mean, Emily, this is lead up to a question, has, as, as Jeff Goldberg writes so perceptively in The Atlantic, I and mean, Jeff is my, kind of my poll star on these issues, has Netanyahu made partisan a relationship that was so successful basically because it wasn't ever partisan before, and that by making it partisan, he's committed, he's like massively endangered a long-term relationship. I think Jeff is certainly right about the first part, and I was really relieved to, that he said he doesn't understand what Netanyahu is doing because I am so mystified by this. It seems like such an illustration of playing with fire in a way where Israel is just needs much more from the United States than the United States needs from Israel, and there's like a misreading fundamentally of the power dynamic there. But then when I was looking at the poll numbers, which show that Netanyahu's standing in the polls has risen in anticipation of this trip to Washington, I started feeling like the um, set of goals that you presented a minute ago is actually reversed and that what's really going on here is Netanyahu saving his own political skin. And yeah, sure, he doesn't want Iran to get a nuclear bomb. But this is my like fundamental loathing for Bibi Netanyahu is I think in the end, it is always just about Bibi Netanyahu being in office, that that is the goal for its own sake, not what you do when you get there. Yes, he has like some policy stances, but those seem secondary to me. And I the idea that you would jeopardize Israel's relationship with the Democratic Party, which like <laughs> is sometimes going to be in power and important in Washington so that Netanyahu can get reelected um, given the coalition politics in Israel. I just that is breathtaking. What I me. wonder, th- though, is how endangered the Democratic Party's relationship is with mm-hmm. American Jews, because in the end of the day, if you're a Democratic politician, you want the money of American Jews who care about the security and safety of Israel. Yeah. So, but are, Except but, there's a longer term threat, isn't there, which is the way in which the Israelis have been treating the Palestinians, the human rights violations, the, you know, sense of concern, deep concern by liberals about the way that Israel's image and it, the reality of Israel in the world has changed. But that's the way in which voters think about Israel. So that what Netanyahu is, is damaging is not the relationship between the politicians and Israel or Netanyahu, but the way in which Americans view Israel. But the effect, so it's public opinion we should care about in terms of Netanyahu. And there's certainly evidence that the younger generations don't really understand why the U.S. makes such a big deal about Israel. And in fact, more to the point that younger generations see actions Israel has taken on military action Israel has taken to defend itself as being 
over the line, out of bounds. That may be the bigger, in fact, not may, that is the bigger problem for Israel than this speech, which I would guess since it's turned, since it's now going through the partisan sorting machine, my guess is that most people are like, whatever, Democrats and Republicans are fighting over this Israel thing, like next, you know, that people have a stronger relationship reaction to, you know, pictures of dead Palestinians as a result of Israeli bombing than this fracas over a speech to Congress. Right. But the Israel has been able to exempt itself from the partisan sorting machine. And now it has chosen to enter that partisan sorting machine in a way that it didn't need to choose it. And that's going to be a problem. I mean, you have people like me. I mean, I'm a classic example. I'm married to an Israeli. All my in-laws are Israelis. I am so defected from Israel, I'm from its policies. And I just can't see myself. I, I find it infuriating that, that the American foreign policy treats Israel as a completely special case. You know, it's not tenable to me anymore. And it, it's become a huge strike against Republicans that they're so reflexively pro whatever it is the Israeli government wants to do. Seems. But I guess John's point is, are we overplaying the importance of this symbolic moment with this speech in terms of the partisan rift? And I think that probably we are. I don't think this on its own is going to be, you know, the end. But it's not it does not help. And Obama is going to be the president for the next couple of years. So the fact that Susan Rice, his person is saying this is destructive to the fabric of the relationship is bad. And eventually that plays out in other tumultuous ways that do affect American public opinion and American. American politicians. The um, also in terms it's such of a self-inflicted blow too, so unnecessary. But I also think Emily that there's a, there's a genuine split between what Israelis think the correct stance towards Iran is and what Americans ought to think the correct stance. Our right, I don't so think our interests are, are congruent. I mean, we we should worry much less about an Iran with a nuclear weapon in the United States than Israel needs to worry right. about it. And right. we, we want an Iran that we want a strategic. We want Iran to be. A, you know, a stable, more moderate country integrated into the world economy and, you know, presumably with closer diplomatic ties to us, less a destabilizing force. And Israel may not want that, although I actually think Israel probably should want that. That is probably. Well, we can risk more for that possible outcome and feel like we can still sleep at night because right. we're not right next door to Iran. Right. So maybe that's the way to think about it. But I mean, this goes back to the points you were both making earlier. It's not clear that Netanyahu alienating Obama gets Israel anything more on Iran than they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. In fact, you know, arguably the opposite. I guess the if you were in Netanyahu's position and you felt like all other avenues had been exhausted and your only break on this Agreement you're, using, that, you're using his actual language. That's their language. Oh, the only break. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Anyway. Well, anyway, if, if the only thing that can stop this deal going forward is Congress, then you have to go, you know, if your obsession is protecting Israel and you think the president's going to make a bad deal, you'll do anything you can, even if it breaks protocol and all that. Goldberg's point was you do more harm than good by doing that. I guess his point was actually if you – Netanyahu should have done – a number of things long ago to keep this relationship yes. close so that it wouldn't get to this pass or that if it did, he could have some other avenue than this break glass in case of emergency avenue, which is to go to Congress. Emily, do you remember you and I took that trip to Israel? We were on one of those APAC junkets. junkets. Yes. It was in must have been early 2007. I think it was. Um, a, that it was, seems about right. Maybe even earlier. Than it was that. either 2006 yeah, okay. or 2007. And we met with a lot of Israeli security officials who were talking about how Iran is – it's a red line. Iran is one year away from – 18 Obama. months. Yeah. Yep. One, yes. You know, a year, 18 months. So that's in 2007, which is, is certainly not 18 months ago. One of the things that is very frustrating about this whole thing is just the, the level of crying wolf that happens with everyone. The sense that at every minute, oh, Iran is just – it's just there. Now, now, admittedly, we sabotage their nuclear program. There have been sanctions and so forth that have – undoubtedly delayed things. But it is not true, you know, that Iran it was 18 months away from a bomb then. They're not 18 months away from a bomb now. There's a kind of alarmism that makes everyone, it's easy to mistrust everyone in this. True. Although the thing about alarmism is then it's very hard to separate out the degree to which the alarmism is what delays right. the yeah. apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, totally. No, right? that's totally true. That's totally true. So Yeah, so, I don't know the answer to that or even how you would figure it out. Should Democrats attend this speech? 
Well, it's funny. A lot of them are still up in the air on whether they're going to attend it. I mean, a number of senators are going still up in the air. Or Dianne Feinstein, the ranking member on the Senate Select Intelligence Committee, I think basically they should go to the speech because, A, two wrongs don't make a right. So there's a deference you pay to foreign leaders who come to address Congress, and that's one. And, B, they believe in the relationship between the United States and Israel, and Netanyahu's coming as the leader of the state, so recognize him in his title, not in his behavior. I think you go. The bigger question for Democrats in Congress is what they do about Menendez-Kirk, or Kirk Menendez, which is the uh, the bill that, that the president doesn't want them to pass that would uh, impose sanctions, that would make, as the administration says, would throw a bomb into the middle of the negotiations with Iran. That's the real fascinating question about what Democrats are going to do. I think there are 13 Democrats in support of that, which would give it the power to pass. And so that's really the thing to keep the eye on. One other thing I would just mention is that Kerry said in talking about Netanyahu, to Emily's point about what Susan Rice, National Security Advisor, said on Charlie Rose earlier in the week, it's one thing to just say, we're not going to talk to Netanyahu. We're going to, we don't think this is the right thing. They are actively saying things out loud to harm him. And Kerry said, you know, Netanyahu was wrong about Iraq. So he's wrong about this. You raise Iraq, you're, you're putting real bruises on somebody when you start to conjure those kinds of things in, in America, this close to the speech. So they've obviously decided to pick up their rhetoric a little more this week. Gavest this week is sponsored by Netflix, which is presenting season three of its original series, House of Cards. All the episodes of the new season are available when you're listening to this, Friday, February 27th, they are up. They're there. I don't know why you're listening to us. Why aren't you watching House of Cards? House of Cards is, of course, the acclaimed. Maybe they're in the car or at the They gym can watch in the car, seat. watch on their phone. It's not that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, House is, of Car Cards. It is, of course, the acclaimed. By the way, Netflix is not endorsing you watching this in your car. I just want to make that clear. Well, unless your Only car. David Plotz would say something so wrong. Unless you're not unless driving. Unless your car is just sitting yeah. in the parking lot. Yeah. Then so, what are you doing in it? It's too cold if you live on the East Coast or lots of other Not the people I'm don't sure. live on the East Coast. House of Cards is the acclaimed political thriller from executive producer David Fincher. It stars, of course, Golden Globe winner Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright as the ruthless couple Frank and Claire Underwood. Now in the power seat of D.C. politics, the Underwoods must watch their backs as allies and enemies from the past can bring everything crashing down around them. You can stream seasons one. Two of House of Cards, of course, also, and then all the episodes of season three available starting when you're listening to this Friday, February 27th, only on Netflix. Chris Christie, once the heartthrob of the GOP establishment, is in trouble. His presidential campaign seems wounded, even though it hasn't even started yet. Bridgegate took a toll on him last year. There were really embarrassing photos and comments about him at the football games this fall, going to Dallas Cowboys games. And now there's a judicial ruling that Christie's attempts to cut back on state employee union pension funding were illegal and that he needs to redress that. Christie is very unpopular in his home state of New Jersey. And his presidential campaign is kind of, it's slow going. You know, he, had a, he had a bad trip. Oh, vaccines. He said stupid things about vaccines on a trip to London. And Jeb Bush has has hogged the limelight, the mainstream establishment presidential candidate limelight. So and the money. John, is this um, is Christie really struggling or is this all just sort of black ops by Bush and optics by Bush to to undermine him? Yeah, Bush wrote that ruling saying that the state had to pay the pension system back. There are two problems with, with Christie. One is his campaign is sort of listless in the sense that it's just not a part of the conversation. And why does that matter at this point? We're so far off from the from even the first caucus is because that leads to money. It leads to picking up organizers. Now, he has a he has an organization in Iowa and has a very good organizer um, at the top of his effort in Iowa, which sh- shows that he's serious and working on the ground. And so you could buy the idea that, you know, he's quietly working away in the states. Jeb Bush is taking his lunch in terms of picking up the old Romney supporters, in terms of gathering the establishment around him, and in terms of sort of building momentum behind one candidate to support this group of voters and those group of elites who want a Republican with executive experience who's been in office and who has kind of the ballast to take on the big stage. He's losing the um, kind of invisible primary 
And I think then also there's the public problem he's got, which is that in a recent CBS poll, I guess it's about a week old now, CBS asked Republicans, who would you never vote for as a candidate? And then the second question was, how much do you know about them? Scott Walker, the how much do you know about them? Uh, 59% said they didn't know enough. So Walker's challenge is, got to define myself for those people in a positive way. First impressions matter. Christie, don't know enough about number, was I think 26%. Jeb Bush was 25 So in other words, people, a smaller number of people still need to know more about Chris Christie. His... I will never vote for that guy number was in the mid 40s, higher than anybody else by a long shot. So he's got the worst combination. More people who say they'll never vote, more Republicans who say they'll never vote for him and a smaller number of people who don't know enough about him who he could then get to know through dynamic acts of of exciting campaigning. Now, those numbers are not set in absolute stone. Candidates can make their own weather. But going back to the invisible primary part, he's been a little listless and so – his capacity has yet to be demonstrated that he can go out there and really kind of show this magical campaigning talent for people. Emily, you have Jeb Bush, who's hogging the limelight at the moment, and then Scott Walker, who is Bush and Walker, are the two candidates that people are really talking about at this moment with enthusiasm. Where are the rest of them? Why is there not a why is Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Rubio, Santorum? Bobby Jindal, why are they why are they not as much objects of discussion and presence as the other ones? Well, partly Walker has actually is doing things as governor. I mean, Wisconsin is about to pass another union busting bill, or maybe they already they already passed it, sorry. And now Walker's gonna sign it. So he's in the news for actual policy reasons. Uh, you know, it seems to me like Rubio, Ram Paul, all those other people you just named, like they'll have their moments. Maybe they're the ones who are doing the quietly effective campaigning behind the scenes in Iowa and New Hampshire that John was talking about. I also wonder, though, if like Christie's going to come back into play just because it's so early and in the kind of, you know, soap opera slash sitcom world of politics and political journalism, we're going to need to seize on some other character. Like he's going to have to have his late in the season or mid-season episode because everyone's just going to get bored of Bush and Walker. I know, but there's so many other people. I mean, there's only there are only true. so many slots to fill. I mean, the the, the kind of governor slot, the charismatic governor slot, the moderate Republican slot, which are the ones that Christie could occupy. They're both sort of being encroached on by Bush is obviously taking the the moderate moderate place and the charismatic governor there's so many charismatic governors that are jockeying there so except christie is so good he's such a good character right i mean people love writing and thinking and covering him because he's unpredictable and feisty and so surely he'll have some moment of attracting attention in a better way again or in a negative way and if there's anybody who marco rubio would be the the other one who has the character and charisma to have a moment and you know campaigns can be can swerve in different directions if you have a moment in front of cameras at the right at the right time and that may be silly but it's just the way things work christie obviously has huge downside risk right uh, to use a cliche which is that he can have his moment in a very bad way yelling at some you know poor widow um or hugging and kissing moment. the cowboys owner yeah right i mean he he needs his moment to be kind of the the pure Christie, which is like speaking some plain truth out loud to some. I mean, you could almost imagine them confecting a moment, right? You'd want to have like some sniveling little member of the press poking at him on some issue that only elites in New York care about. And then have Christie just dispatch him with one wave of his arm. Um, And that will have all of that happen in front of cameras. Uh, so he has the ability to do what you say, Emily, which is kind of to grab the bag. And and you're right. It's way, way early. It's just um, you look for the little shoots of instinct, you know, that a candidate can build on. And so far, he's just not demonstrated that basically at all this campaign, with the exception, as I say, of of having some people in key positions in early states that shows he's at least got an eye towards what you really have to be doing, which is building the structure that will then that you'll then really need in eight months. Can I raise a, an awkward question? But we talked about this on the show before. So he 
judging by the photographs of him at the Cowboys game, he does not look like he's lost weight. There was this whole oh, thing. Oh, he's where... lost a great deal of weight. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. He had that yeah. gastric bypass. Yeah, yeah, no, but if you look at pictures of him, yeah, I don't know. He just had, you know, a lot to lose. And he's, yeah, oh, no, he's he has? different, yeah. Oh. Hey, I That's just funnier. made a mistake. He didn't hug the Cowboys owner at the Super Bowl. I just otherwise I'm going to seem like a bigger. We all know that. It doesn't matter. I know that the Cowboys weren't, they at, the weren't at the Super Bowl. Well, I he, said it a minute ago. And I was... The playoff game. Yeah, thank you. Where is Ted Cruz, John? Why? Why is it? Yeah, it's a good question. Ted Cruz. There, you know, there, there are Ted two Cruz. questions about Ted Cruz that are interesting. One is where is he in the presidential question sweepstakes? And there's the conservative political action conference meeting in Washington at the end of this week where he has an opportunity to make a big noise, but where he has not made the kind of noise he has before is in the funding over the Department of Homeland Security, which uh, still remains unresolved and which is showing some interesting tensions between John Boehner and Mitch McConnell, which I think we talked about on the show a couple months ago when, when we sort of were trying to think through what this Congress would look like. It could have been a platform under the old Cruz rules for a big you know, defense of the grassroots and using the establishment, which is to say Mitch McConnell, as his foil and – Cruz has not done that. So he's not only been hard to find on the campaign trail, but he has been staying off of his traditional stage in Washington. Now, that may change as this Department of Homeland Security deadline approaches on Friday evening. But I'm not quite sure where he's been. And he hasn't been doing what, you know, Rand Paul has his own constituency. There are people who liked his dad and who are not going to vote for Jeb Bush. And, and who like Rand Paul. So he has to be thought of in his own category. He has, there can't what is, be that many of those Well, he has, he has a kind of floor, as they say in the cliched political conversation. The question is whether he also has a ceiling. So whether they're just a group of people who just think he's too either out there or too immature or whatever. But he's his own special case. Cruz and Rubio are sort of similar, and Rubio has been working really hard both with funders, um, or I should say people who raise money and give it to candidates, but also to make an, an intellectual case for why he should be president. And his argument, whether you bet or not, is that because he's been on the intelligence and foreign affairs committees over the last four years, he has made the right calls on Syria, on ISIS, on Russia, and that his ability to see the world clearly and make those correct calls gives him a leg up over basically, A, other senators, but B, also the governors who may have executive experience but don't have that kind of steeped in foreign policy experience. You may recognize that as an echo of the argument made by a freshman senator from Illinois in 2008 when he argued that his correct position on the Iraq war gave him standing to make foreign policy claims as president. So essentially, Rubio is using an echo of the Obama strategy. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're echoing Obama strategy. Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about? There was a really interesting Supreme Court case this week in which Samantha Aloff challenged a decision by a outlet of Abercrombie and Fitch not to hire her at a mall because she wore a headscarf to a job interview. And the question is this really, like, delicate one. This is what the court was wrestling with this week about if you have a job applicant coming in and they're wearing religious clothing that makes it seem like they would be an odd fit, do you have to raise it if you're the employer and bring it up and then accommodate it if the person is wearing the the hijab or kippah or whatever for religious reasons? Or is merely raising it to invest in stereotypes that are somehow problematic, which was what Abercrombie and Fitch was arguing? It seems to me like it's really clear. You raise it and then you accommodate it if it's not a problem. Like that's the pluralistic society we live in. That's what Congress intended when it was trying to get grant extra protections to religious minorities. And something like wearing a hijab in an Abercrombie and Fitch store is the sort of accommodation that doesn't impose burdens on other people. That seems like one that we should – that at least the American conception of religious um, freedom encompasses. But those were the questions Wait, the sorry, Supreme I Court was going to Yeah, I understand. What, who, what did Abercrombie and Fitch do that was problematic or what is – So they, they refused hire to hire her. They saw right. her a job. Right. They were about to offer a job. She was a 17-year-old Oh, is girl. that right that they were about to offer her the job? I didn't know that yeah. fact was in the okay. – And then they changed their minds because they thought the hijab meant she wouldn't fit in. But they never gave her a chance to say – like, I'm wearing it for religious reasons, which then would probably have imposed a burden on the store to make a, a reasonable accommodation for the hijab. And so what they're arguing is, well, we couldn't even bring this up with her to find out why she was wearing it because that would have 
meant that we were buying into a stereotype that that's why people wear hijabs. It's it doesn't totally make sense. Wait, but why but else do people wear hijabs? Can't you? Don't you? I, <laughs> I mean, women wear things on their heads. I wore my scarf on my head yesterday because I was cold. But yes, exactly. Why else do women wear hijabs? They don't. So it's sort of a weird. Would they be argument. forced to make an accommodation if they had asked? In other words, if they if they by knowing by coming into the ownership of the well, information, they have, to have some that, other reason not to ha- hire her, right? But they, well, yeah, but they, they can would, make an appearance claim, not question. a. In other words, but they, can you make an appearance claim? But we, if you're Abercrombie Fitch, you can say, "Well, we have a very specific look, and we want." They did our, try to say that, like yeah. preppy white person look. Well, they yeah, didn't say right. white person. Yeah, problematic, right? I mean, the question then is: it turns on a test of reasonableness. Can you have someone wearing a hijab who is a clerk at an Abercrombie and Fitch store? Or does that so go against the image of the company that to allow for that accommodation would, like, I don't know, make it lose all its customers? I mean, I think the store loses on those grounds. It's hard to – it doesn't really pass the straight face What are the, what are the ways that you could hire – you could say that person doesn't seem like they're going to fit in? You don't – I mean, the, the weird right. thing is, of course, we constantly <laughs> – if you're hiring, that is a constant mental judgment you're making. You know, if you're working but, in an information profession, you have the luxury to make it based on – Things that aren't have nothing to do with how they look. Well, about their in a lot of ways, the surprising thing about this case was that Abercrombie and Fitch wrote down or said to Samantha Olaf, "This is why we're not hiring you." Right? (laughs) The answer is you're not supposed to bring up for being stupid. Well, I mean, look, race, religion, ethnicity, age. These are categories of discrimination, and in some states, sexual orientation, which are protected from this kind of arbitrary decision making and you know if you don't hire someone because you think they're too old or too young or because you don't like gay people that's we think that's not okay and so you're you're not supposed to do that oh so they're saying we made a judgment based on appearance but it had nothing to do with religion they're sort of because they didn't that, know it had to do with religion because they, they didn't ask. Right. This right. Is, they're saying basically like we don't want to ask this question. Now, the real reason they don't want to ask the question is then they, the they would be on the hook for making a reasonable accommodation. But they're saying, oh, it would further a stereotype even to ask. Well, and also, obviously, there are some questions you're not supposed to ask in hiring, which are illegal. Like, to ask. are you pregnant or planning to have kids? Yes, exactly. Right. Yes. So, so they could. Right. So they're, exactly, they're saying it's not our business why she was wearing a hijab. We just thought the the hijab was a problem. The, but of course, like the comeback is, but she can't address the hijab and ask for the reasonable accommodation if she doesn't know that this is a rule, like that this is the reason that she's not getting the job ahead of time. Uh, Interesting, right? John, are you pregnant? And what's your chatter? <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not pregnant. Um, but uh, my chatter. Are you planning to get pregnant? Because that would be amazing. If <laughs> yeah, you were. I was. Gonna, I was. Yeah, I was. I was gonna, I'm staying <laughs> we away. We would only want more of you on the Gap Fest and Atlas. <laughs> my chatter is about two Tennessee high school girls basketball teams. Oh God, I read the story. The Riverdale High School <gasps> and the Smyrna High School. They were in competition against each other on the 21st of February, and they were in. It was in a tournament, and the the round that they were in would determine who would be seated third in the regional showdown. And that would have pitted them against Blackman High School, the dreaded Blackman High School, who are defending state champs, of course, as all of our listener knows from our previous several episodes on uh, Tennessee high school basketball, girls basketball. So what happened is both teams engaged in an attempt to throw the game, but it wasn't like a subtle attempt. Basically, the game was not underway long before each team pass the ball to the other team, hoping then to get the other. But then once the golden basketball was in their hands, the members of the team would run down the court and just throw it into the rim. So it'd go careening off into the... When those efforts didn't solve the problem for either team, they started fouling each other. The Smyrna coach told his players to go foul the Riverdale folks. So the Riverdale kids are on the on the foul line, and the footage of this is hysterical. And they basically just, like, throw – I mean, they do everything but throw the ball, like, into the bleachers. They basically – the ball makes no contact with the rim. At about, like, halfway through the game, the referee – 
stops the game because the players escalate, right? And they finally, one of them starts to score, tries to score on their own basket. <laughs> so the, the the ref just like stops the game. So is the score zero zero for the entire? No, it's in the, they scored a surprising number of points. Yeah, it was in like in the twenties, or I think yeah. in the thir- it was like in, I think in the mid twenties when the um, referee stopped the game and talked to the coach and said like your your players are like now even shooting at the wrong basket. So the, the jig is up, and so finally in the end, Smyrna won. I guess they had the the greater One sense of conscience. Lost. Well, they won fifty five uh, thirty nine. So they kind of things did finally kick in, and uh, there was a review, and the uh, coaches were penalized. They banned both teams from the postseason and put them on probation for the next season. But I think there was also some extra sanction for the coaches because, you know, the kids were basically being instructed to lose by by the coaches. But and this is a setup. They shouldn't have a situation in which it's better to lose. Like, I don't know. Is that wrong? Is yeah, that cheating? I was or just is it, think, or this right. is back to our gamesmanship Right, right. It's so interesting. I think the, there, there's a solution to this, which is probably has to do with giving you the choice – Yes, like winner gets the choice about whether they win or lose. Well, you can't, but you, but if you lost, you're out of the tournament. Oh, but I guess no, you're yeah, no, they're both in the tournament. They're different seeds. Yeah, that's like could you, you know, you you get to pick where you see right that being the higher seed is actually worse and but so i think then that yeah, would, yeah i guess that's something. true yeah that but that then to get I mean, it gets into very it. complicated yeah 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 just like play the damn game, game try to win the incentive is to lose then like of course people are going to throw the game it right. just doesn't seem it seems like it follows it does follow it's very hard it's a it's a hard case but they, they did it it was they, it's but very if you're funny. going to lose be artful so <laughs> be um, artful but then you could get ahead by accident my chatter, two quick chatters. I realized we didn't do a necessary chatter, which is that John Dickerson has a new podcast called Whistle Stop. As GabFest listeners know, one of the best things about the GabFest is when John does a cocktail chatter on some incredible moment in history. And there's a special podcast just devoted to John talking about wonderful this was moments so clear in presidential that it's been history. Recognized officially. And so the first one came out this week, and it's a John talking about the famous moment in the 1980. Uh, Republican presidential primary campaign where Ronald Reagan is is in a debate in New Hampshire and takes possession of a microphone. Because he it's, paid for it. And John is such a great raconteur, as everyone knows. I knew this story about Reagan, and yet John filled it with details I'd never heard before. Incredible drama. It is fantastic. It's a, It's – you know, I don't want to listen to John. I don't want to tout John Dickerson, who does nothing but make fun of me. But it's a great new podcast, so you should listen so to Whistle fun. Stop. Also produced by Mike Wallow, so even better. My quick uh, other chatter is there, there's a wonderful thing on the internet, the best thing I've read in a long time. Paul Ford and Virginia Heffernan, two wonderful uh, writers, started to engage sort of in pranking each other, basically. It developed almost organically, and then they turned it into a, an article. But they started sending each other's emails that were designed to inspire dread in the other and just the emails that you just don't want to receive and there and it just gets it escalates and escalates so it begins with the subject line is can you give me a quick call by end of day so which is it that's 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 a great one and then, <laughs> I hate and that. then i think virginia replied to that with etna enrollment period ended <laughs> noon today <laughs> <laughs> just, but it just gets better and better and like so that so there's one is there one about your corporate compliance training? Uh, if it's not completed by the end of the day, your email will be there's shut things off. Things like that, yeah. yeah there's things like that. There ones, but there are also just ones about you know that we've discovered the plagiarism in your pieces. Right. Or oh, don't <laughs> today's the day to take that tech sabbatical. Please don't read what's on Reddit about you. Yeah. <laughs> um, or like That's invitations. Excellent. This was a great one to Paul. Um, subject, 92nd Street, Y panel. So this is from Virginia to Paul. We have Lena Dunham, Kirstie Alley, and Brian Stelter for a March panel on obesity. It promises to be an amazing emotional night. But we're looking for someone not too famous who hasn't given in to the pressure to lose the weight or otherwise practice self-care <laughs> and is frankly more relatable to the flyover states. Someone here who saw you stocking your cart at Key Food and having trouble in the narrow aisle thought you'd be great to talk to about weight challenges. How should we ID you? Are you working these days? <laughs> <laughs> it just it just goes on and on. It's really, really, really funny. So I recommend uh, it's on Medium. Paul Ford, Virginia Heffernan. I forget the name. The other would be emails referring to you by the job you had three jobs ago. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> those, those are good. Our intern is Tarek Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. That's a new thing, guys. 
check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Panoply is this wonderful new entity that Slate has set up. It's a new company to do podcasts, not just the, all the wonderful Slate podcasts you've known, but podcasts of from lots of new partners. There's a great new New York Times Magazine partner, for example, podcast that Emily's um, colleagues are doing on the, the Ethicist has become a podcast. There are podcasts coming from Gretchen Rubin, from Real Simple, from the Huffington Post, from New York Magazine, from like tons of fantastic partners. So Panoply is, uh, is amazing. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we've talked about today. It also links to tickets to our live show in New York on April 8th. Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. And definitely come to our New York show, slate.com slash GabFestNYC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.